and be opening your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. We will cover this story that is this entire chapter. So um, we'll get into that in just a second. Um, this morning, just before the service started, I got a text message I wanted to share with you because it's an important prayer request. And so the family that our church supports that serves in the country of Turkey asked for some urgent prayer because he said that just today three pastors have been arrested in that country. And um, when the government begins to take steps, and the government of Turkey, if you've been following the news lately at all, and they had the big coup attempt and um, heavy Islamic uh, emphasis with the government that did not used to exist to this level anymore, um, is now taking control of that country. Um, if they're going to begin to arrest Christian pastors, then that's a significant step in the wrong direction. So before we get into this, he asked if we would pray, and so I would like to lead us, and let's just do that. And dear Lord Jesus, we um, certainly can't understand exactly what's going on there, but we understand that wherever there's a great door and effectual, there are many adversaries. Uh, We understand that uh, our brother and sister there are concerned. And most importantly, uh, the people, millions and millions of people of that nation, uh, they live in darkness, and they need the light. And uh, there are governmental forces that are doing everything in their power, it seems like, to, to hinder them from being able to get the light. But, Lord, you're stronger than all those things. And so we just pray for the country, and we pray that they would continue to keep uh, the legal stand that they used to have, and that is that there is freedom of religion, regardless of their historical background uh, with Islam, that they would just allow people to freely exercise their conscience as it concerns religion. And I pray for these pastors that have been arrested, and I want to pray for our brother and sister that are there. And I just pray, God, that you just continue to protect them and use them and give them wisdom every day. Uh, you need to intervene. There's no other answer. Uh, so we continue to pray for them and for this country. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, that's kind of a serious note, and it does come right on the heels of this last week, which has been an awesome week. If you've been with us for our missions conference that just ended this week, man, that was, that was a fantastic time. And if you're like me, you're probably tired if you've been here every night, and the people that have been serving regularly, and a lot of people served and volunteered. And, and again, just a shout-out of thanks to everybody who took their time and, you all know, working full-time jobs and you'd still come here in the evenings and whether it was food or music or children or greeting or whatever your role might have been, man, we couldn't have done it without you. Um, but this subject of world missions and, and getting the gospel to all peoples, yeah, it's that serious. And, and so, as was announced earlier, we are unashamedly asking for participation from our church body. And so many participate, but yet There's room for many more to participate in giving to world evangelism and helping to finance the gospel. I really believe that one of the key roles of the United States of America, one of the reasons why God still has his hand of blessing on the United States of America, among other things, but one of them is is because the United States of America far and away funds the gospel all around the world. And we who are blessed to be in this country need to seriously take that into consideration. So I know that you'll prayerfully consider that and, and do your part as well. Um, but if you've been a part of this conference like me, then, then you probably, you know, could use a break. You could use some time off. And for me personally, for example, I, one of the things that I like to do to relax is to 
ride a bicycle. I like road cycling. And, uh, you know, I'm not the greatest in the world, but I do enjoy doing it. And um, one of the things, just peacefully getting out alone on the road and, and getting some exercise, but having time alone with the Lord and whatnot. But, you know, here where we live, it's, it's rolling hills of countryside. So there's times of climbing the hills, which, of course, is a lot of work and uh, hard. And then when you get to the top, you know, the view is awesome. And then downhills are fun. You know, that sort of thing. Then you get on the flat and you just grind it out again. Well, that's just kind of my hobby of choice. It also happens to be um, a fair illustration of really what we're going to see as we get into 1 Kings chapter 19. And the reason being is, uh, if you'll remember what we had in our series, and again, the subject, the theme for the series is standing for the Lord in perilous times. 1 Kings chapter 18 was that great story of Elijah on Mount Carmel and how he had the victory with God calling, you know, calling down the fire of God on the sacrifice and, and, and slaying all of the prophets of Baal and, and all these things. So literally, they were on a mountaintop and afterwards literally ran back down the mountain through a valley back to the town of Jezreel. And uh, so literally what happened physically, geographically, was he was on a mountain and he came down to the valley. Well, spiritually speaking, that's really the story we see when we hit 1 Kings chapter 19 because spiritually, how could you be higher walking with the Lord than to have seen this amazing move of God like he saw in 1 Kings chapter 18? And so spiritually, what we're going to see is the ultimate highest mountaintop experiences that you might experience with the Lord will typically result with the lowest crash and burn that comes after it. And so, you know, we come off of a real high week of praising the Lord with people and talking about reaching the world, and there were great messages and worship and fellowship. And, I mean, for a lot of us, that's a mountaintop experience, but now here we are. We're getting back into the regular week, and, and we're back, you know, to the ground, and we're back to the daily grind of working through our jobs and the responsibilities that we have. And so we kind of, like Elijah, are coming down off the mountain. And that's our title for today, coming down off the mountain. And, you know, it's often said that, you know, when you're at the lowest possible point, the only place you possibly could go is up. Well, conversely, when you're at the highest point, the only place you possibly can go from there is down. But you can prepare for it. And so what I want to do is, as an introduction, just look at the first three verses of chapter 19, and we'll set the stage, and then we'll get into it. So look with me in 1 Kings 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. And so when we see this story unfold as they came down off the mountain, what are the circumstances that greet Elijah when he's there? Well, in verse 1, what we see is Ahab's assessment of the whole situation of the story of chapter 18. Ahab's assessment is that He gives no credit to God whatsoever. Notice he says he told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how now all the prophets of Baal have been slain as though that was all Elijah's doing. He he made no mention of the fact that 
against all odds and with the barrels of water poured on the sacrifice and how Baal's prophets uh, were able to do nothing and how God, Jehovah, did everything to just overwhelmingly convince everyone that he is the Lord. There's no mention of that. He just says, hey, let me tell you what Elijah did. And that's what happens a lot of times in life. If you're not focused properly, you can't even see what God is doing and you just attribute it to what man is doing. Well, we get to verse number two and we see Jezebel's threat. And so then Jezebel, who, by the way, we have covered this in the past, but just for review, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, as we've done some cross-referencing into the book of Revelation, have seen that she represents a religious force, a religious power. And in the relationship with Ahab, it's very clear that Jezebel is really the voice in Ahab's head. And what we understand just by a cursory review of current events in history is that there is always a religious force or a power behind the political force, which is Ahab, the king of Israel. And so as we get into this, we see Jezebel, for example, and she threatens Elijah, oh, you killed our guys, huh? Well, I'm going to make sure you're dead too. You've got 24 hours, and I'm going to make sure that you're dead too. So in the name of this religion, and Jezebel had 400 prophets of her own that attended to these groves, these idol-worshiping areas, And so she says, look, my religion will now start to kill you and your religion. It's kind of like jihad, or it's kind of like the Crusades, or many other things in history as you go through. But this religious force controlling the political force ultimately sets up this threat. And so Elijah could have been thinking, well, man, we just proved that Baal, and he's nothing, and he has no power whatsoever. But it kind of doesn't matter because, you know, this chick is crazy. I mean, she's going to kill me, right? I mean, who cares if her religion really doesn't have power? I mean, she still is the wife of the king and can get this thing done. So verse number three, we see Elijah's escape. And so Elijah, after this great victory, runs for his life. And the thing that I want you to understand is is that, quite frankly, we are most vulnerable to fear during the letdown that follows a triumph. And you need to be aware of that sort of thing. So do you know what this story really shows us? Well, in your notes, I put this story shows Elijah's humanity. That's what it shows. Uh, This is also a reason why you can know that the Bible absolutely is written by God. It's not written by man. Because it shows man at his very worst as well as at his very best. I mean, don't you think that if man just told this story, coming off the story of chapter 18, this massive victory, that Elijah would just ride off into the sunset as the greatest hero that ever lived? And, you know, that's the way we would probably write the story. But immediately God shows the the real humanity of man. And, And we should be actually encouraged by that because that means that God knows your weaknesses as well. And that's what we want to learn from as we get into it today. I mean, without question, more is expected from a man of God than from just somebody else. But you need to understand that while a man of God, he is still just a man. Uh, His feet are still of clay. Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, it says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed 
but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Or you could go back to Psalm 39 and verse 5 where it says, Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. And so what we see in the Bible throughout the narrative of the Bible is that it records Noah's drunkenness, Lot's carnality, Abraham's lies, Moses' anger, Aaron's jealousy, David's adultery, Jonah's disobedience, and Peter's denial. And we could go on and on and on. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20, it says, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We all suffer from the same problem. So the fact is that Elijah is facing some serious challenges in his life as he comes down off the mountain. And we're going to see what these challenges are. Let me just stop for a second and ask the Lord to, to open our eyes to see exactly what he would have for us. And Heavenly Father... This is our prayer because as we look into this story, which does seem surprising to us, after a great victory, we have, wow, some real problems. Lord, we really ought to be encouraged because the truth is we all suffer from those kinds of things. And Lord, my prayer is is that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts. Lord, specifically to those who feel themselves today down in the valley. Those who today are suffering with the kinds of challenges that Elijah suffered with and that they would get the answers that they need from your word. And for others of us that maybe would say, well, I think actually things are going pretty good right now. Well, allow us to just take heed and to earmark this story because eventually the time's coming for us too. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, asking that you would do what only you can do. Amen. Well, the first challenge we see is that he's challenged with depression. And we're going to reread verse 3 and come on down to verse number 8. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. So what we're seeing here, again, Jezebel threatens Elijah's life. He's desperate. And he flees to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is located in the very southern portion of what is the region now called Judah. And he wanted to go into Judah because, remember, this is a time when Judah, the two southern tribes, are separate and distinct from Israel, the ten northern tribes. Ahab is the king of Israel. He flees to Judah because that's not Ahab's jurisdiction. And not just as he crossed the border into Judah, thinking I'll be safe from the control and power of Jezebel, he goes to the southernmost end of Judah, to the town of Beersheba. But, oh, he hadn't really calculated that if you would look ahead in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 18, you'll find that Ahab's daughter was married to the king of Judah. Well, how about that? 
No, you know, you can run, but you can't hide. And once he realized, wow, I'm not even safe in Judah, he had a servant that traveled with him. He's like, look, you just stay here. I got to go further. And he headed out into the wilderness. He headed out further south into the desert. He's on his way to the south end of the, of the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Horeb. And so when he's in this state, he's despondent, he's desperate, he needed something, but he didn't need to be around people. He was, he was afraid. And what we see in verse number four is that he's depressed because he desires death more than life. Now, I do want to point out to you that in this narrative, while he is desiring that his life would just be taken, he himself took no measures to act on that. He just cried out to God and said, hey, this, it'd be better if I was just not alive. And and what I want you to see in your notes is that depression makes you irrational. Depression makes you irrational. I mean, his desire to die, it's inconsistent, isn't it? I mean, why did he flee Jezreel and Jezebel? Oh, he fled Jezreel to save his life. And then he got out in the wilderness and he's like, well, just take my life. Well, I mean, if that was rational, he could have just stayed in Jezreel, right? But he fled to save his life. It's almost like he would say, Lord, look, it's okay if you take my life, just don't let Jezebel take it. Well, that's not rational. That's not the way a... a, 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 rational, reasonable thinking person would conclude the situation. But I do want to point out to you that while it's not rational, it's also not uncommon. It happens to people. Uh, In Numbers chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, this is Moses. And he says to the Lord, I'm not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. Moses was at the end of himself, and he cries out to the Lord, and he's like, look, just end this thing. I can't bear it anymore. Job said the same thing in chapter 10, verse 18 and 19. Wherefore then hast thou brought me forth out of the womb, Lord? Oh, that I had given up the ghost, and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. And Job says, look, my life would have been better off if I was never even born, having forgotten all the years of prosperity before the latest and certainly very difficult trial that he was going through. Jonah, the prophet, similarly, immediately following the the final obedience and preaching an amazing revival in the city of Nineveh, In chapter 4 and verse 3, Now therefore, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Coming off the mountain, landed in the valley. Irrational, yet nevertheless, real feelings of depression. Well, thankfully, aren't you glad that sometimes God doesn't answer your prayers? I mean, God did not take Elijah's life. In fact, those of you who are aware of the Bible story, you know there's only two men in the Bible that ascended into heaven without ever dying, and Elijah's one of them. Not only did he not take his life then, he didn't take his life in the sense of death, ever. And so he had his issues, and God was going to help him. So the next thing I want you to see in your notes is the cause of depression. 
And the cause of depression is looking at the wrong thing. It says in verse number three, when he saw, well, what did he see? Well, what he saw was the circumstances surrounding Jezebel and her threats on his life. What he did not see was the Lord. What he did not see is how God just delivered him and would indeed be able to deliver him again if he would have just stood for that. Looking at the wrong thing always drives you to the wrong conclusion. It happened a lot in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes. What did he see? And beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zor. And so Lot looked around and he saw the area by Sodom and Gomorrah and he's like, man, this is pretty nice. I'll think I'll hang out here. And you know the rest of the story. That didn't work out very well for him, did it? Uh, We see the 12 spies that go into the promised land to spy it out and to come back and report to the children of Israel in the wilderness. And 10 of them came to the wrong conclusion. Why is that? Well, in Numbers 13 and verse 33, and, and there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. And so they just saw the people. They saw the giants, and they said, wow, we're nothing against them. There's no way that we can continue. And as a result, what happened to them? Well, they wandered around 40 years in the desert, never entered the promised land. Why? Because they didn't walk by faith. They didn't trust the Lord. Peter, the story of walking out on the water, Matthew 14, verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, He was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried saying, Lord, save me. So there's panic. There's fear. There's desperation. These things aren't reasonable. They're not rational. But when you're occupied with your circumstances, what you are doing is a textbook definition of walking by sight, not walking by faith. You're looking at the wrong things. We need to walk by faith. So the next thing in your notes is the reaction to depression. And that's acting in haste. Uh, Elijah was hasty. He came right off the mountain. He came off the great victory. He had this threat. He looked at the wrong things, and immediately he took off running. Instead of just taking some time, praying about it, working through it with the Lord, the Lord never said run. Well, the Lord never said stay. Okay, well, it was kind of hasty. It says in Isaiah 28 and verse 16 that he that believeth shall not make haste. When you, when you walk by faith and you trust the Lord, things make sense and they fall into place systematically. When you are panicking, when you are fearful, when you are depressed, when you are self-centered with your situation, you will typically make hasty decisions. You will hurry up and make a decision that will ultimately cause you harm. It will ultimately make it difficult for you. Elijah should have stayed. He should have stood against Jezebel. He did pretty good so far. The Lord didn't let him down yet. That's the reaction, acting in haste. But the remedy, the next thing in your notes, the remedy for depression, and this is really what we want to see, is to let God renew you. Let God build up your strength again. Let God help you. And so that's what God does. Like it says in Psalm 103, 13, God responds to Elijah's carnality like a father. He pitied him. He had help. He came to help renew his strength by feeding him and giving him some rest. In Psalm 127, verse 2, it's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he, God, giveth his beloved 
sleep. Isaiah 40, 31, well-known verse, frequently quoted, memorized. They that wait upon the Lord, they're the ones that are going to renew their strength. Take some time. Eat, drink, rest, get your strength. He was so hasty, he ran out. And now, by the way, he's in the middle of the Arabian desert. You know, not a lot of apple trees growing out there. So he's starving, and he's, he's, he's fainting. And the thing I want you to notice in verse 5 is an angel touched him. An angel. Isn't that interesting? Well, if you take the time and just see some things about angels in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 1, we find that they're ministering spirits, uh, meaning they're helpers. They will come to help you. Uh, it was an angel that delivered Lot from Sodom in Genesis 19. Uh, it was an angel that shut the mouth of the lions in Daniel chapter 6. It was an angel that visited Peter in jail in Acts chapter 12. And it was an angel that assured Paul that none of the ship's passengers would be lost at sea in Acts chapter 27. These were the messengers of God that were sent to help the servants of God in their desperate time of need. Why did God do that? Why did God send the angel? Well, he did, to sh- did that to show Elijah that he still loved him. We see the example of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 8. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. And Paul had some trouble when he was in Asia. That we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Yes, even the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest Christian that ever lived, got to the point in his life where he's like... I don't even want to live anymore. I don't even care. It says in verse 9, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves. That's the key. Trust in God. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at the Lord. Walk by faith. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. Oh, and worst case scenario, if somebody actually took your life, well, God raised you back to life. I mean, that's pretty good. Trust him. Notice verse 10. Who delivered us, past tense, from so great a death, and doth deliver, present tense, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us, future tense. It's got it covered. And ye also, Paul says to his audience, helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. So, What is the remedy? Well, you should trust in God. I mean, he's the restorer of life. Begin to walk by faith again and and, and just know that God is good. He has done good things in your life in the past. He wants to do them in the present and certainly promises to continue to do them in the future. He does not change. Why are you changing? And lastly, whether it's, if, if it's not you, but maybe a loved one of yours that's suffering in this area, Paul says here that, Prayer for those people is real help. Sometimes you have friends that are suffering in areas and you just can't relate. You know what? It's probably just as well that you admit, look, I I can't really understand what you're going through, but I'll let you know what. I'll pray for you. And I'll ask God to meet your needs. And how many times have you been going through it and you've been down in the valley and other people have genuinely prayed for you? And you don't exactly know how to even describe it, but you know you have gained supernatural strength. 
because the prayers of the saints genuinely bring help. So this was a real challenge, but that's not all he was challenged with. He was also challenged with loneliness. This is point number two. So depression kind of leads to loneliness, doesn't it? We'll start in verse number nine. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks Before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering into the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Um, Lord, we covered this already. I thought that you remembered. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Melholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Okay, so this is a story that a lot of us have heard of. We know the stories in the cave and God was not in the wind and the fire and the earthquake and the still small voice and he came to speak to him. But, but really what's going on here through his depression and his answer to God's question two times, he basically says, I'm the only guy left. It's just me. There's nobody. And they're about to kill me and there'll be nobody left. And that's all there is. Well, I want you to notice as a setup that where he is at is Horeb. And Horeb, if you go to the back of your Bible and happen to have maps or whatever, you'll find that that is just another name for Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the same place as Mount Horeb. Okay, it's just another name. And, and he's in a cave. And he goes to this cave. Again, it never says that God told him to go there. He's in this cave. He's as far away as he can get on land from Israel heading south. And he gets to this place, and this is the exact same place where Moses met God in the burning bush. This is the exact same place where the law was given to Moses. This is where Moses communed with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And God comes to Elijah in verse 9, and of course again in verse 13, and he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's Basically gives him his resume. Man, all this stuff took place, and they're going to kill me. And so, you can tell, you can feel it, can't you? All this stuff, Lord, all we've been through, and this is where it's gotten me. In a cave in the South Sinai Peninsula. This is where it's at? This is where it's going to end? 
I, even I only. Elijah's overwhelmed. He feels alone and he's overwhelmed. He's certainly focused on himself probably more than he needs to be. But I want you to look at that question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Because God asked it two times. And I just want you to consider this question by emphasizing different words. Let's start with, what are you doing here? Elijah, whose name means my God Jehovah. You, Elijah, who just last chapter saw me do the greatest thing ever. You, Elijah, who have been called to this office of the... You, Elijah, what are you, of all people, what are you doing here? Well, you could go to the next word and say, what are you, what are you doing here? I mean, what are you doing? And, well, the answer would be, uh, nothing. <laughs> Hiding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You should be doing something and you're doing nothing. Or how about, what are you doing here? What are you, what are you doing here? Why are you here? At Sinai, are you thinking that because in the past I've done amazing, great shows of display of power at Sinai that you could use one of those? (laughs) So I'll just go where the power source is at Sinai. Is that what you're thinking? And it's going to set up this story as it goes on. But I do want you to realize that Elijah certainly is aware of Exodus chapter 19, right? In verse 16, and it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount. There's a storm brewing, right? And the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Verse 18, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Do you see the storm? There's wind. There's fire. There's an earthquake. That all happened with Moses. Oh, by the way, do you remember Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah, Moses? If you've been following this study, the two of those guys are like opposite bookends. Well, that would have been an awe-inspiring display of God's power, right? No question about it with the wind and the fire and the earthquake. There's no question that all of those elements picture for us uh, prophetically the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming to judge the earth of unbelievers and disobedience. And certainly Elijah is looking for that kind of help. But he didn't find that kind of help, did he? He didn't find it. Because practically speaking, when a man suffers this kind of loneliness, it's very, very personal. And if you're truly lonely, you could be in a giant crowd. You could be at church today. You could be in a, in a, in a concert hall. You could be in the midst of a, of a very busy, bustling city, and yet still you feel all alone. And really, the only way that you're going to come out of it is not by some huge show. The way you're going to come out of it is the way God gets Elijah out of it, with a still, small voice. There's just something that has to speak to your heart intimately that is going to draw you out of this funk. And that's what he did. He spoke to him in a still, small voice. Uh, That word that's translated as still is also translated calm. 
It's going to be okay. God just calmly whispers to your heart. And that's what he did with Elijah. You see, if God was going to judge Elijah for his disobedience, for his fear, for his running, for any of those things, certainly the message would have had a little different tone, don't you think? But here, it's a much more gentler approach. Listen, we just came off of a mountain experience. We have our annual missions conference. It's one of the biggest events of the whole year of our church. It's times when people, I mean, they they hear the voice of the Lord in a very loud way. But the truth of the matter is, when we come down off the mountain and we get into our daily routine of life, and the bill's got to be paid, and you got to go back to the job that you may not love, and the kids have tons of activities, and there's just things going on all the time, the only thing that will really cause you to genuinely change the decision-making process of your life, and therefore the course of your life, is if in the midst of whatever your experience was, there was truly that still, small voice that speaks to your heart and convinces you this is what God told me. Regardless of the show, regardless of the big deal, regardless of all the things, it's the still, small voice, and that's what worked. That's what worked. Because otherwise, you could have come down here and prayed, you could have signed cards, you could have declared how I'm going to do these things for the Lord, but frequently those declarations fade into obscurity if people don't genuinely hear the voice. So, okay, you heard a voice. What did God say, right? What did he say? Well, it's recorded in verse number 15, go, return. In other words, what are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, you know, bad days. Okay, let me, let me help you. It's going to be okay, but I need you to go back where you were. I need you to return back to the place that fear gripped your heart and caused you to make foolish, hasty decisions. Elijah, here's what you really need to know. I still have things for you to do. You're not done yet. I'm not taking away your life, and you don't know it maybe, but I'll never take away your life. I'll take you alive to be with me. But I've still got things to do. And let me encourage you, church, that, you know, some of us, you know, you're, you're, you get older and you get to the point in your life where you've got a lot of wisdom, but the truth is, you know, the body slows down and maybe you don't have a lot of energy anymore and you just feel like, huh, you know, it was a good run. Uh, not much left for me. If you are still breathing free air, then God still has something for you. There's still work for you to do. That's why you're here, and that's what God wants you to understand. It says in Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. When God is going to do something, he'll tell people that that's what he's going to do, and that's what he did with Elijah. So his job was to go anoint a new king over Syria, to go anoint a new king over Israel, and to go anoint a new prophet in his stead. And basically they're saying, uh, whoever has Ael doesn't kill, well, Jehu will get him. And the ones that escape and Jehu doesn't kill him, then Elisha will get him. God is saying, look, Elijah, I'm going to take care of the disobedience of Israel. I will make sure 
that those that need to be judged will be judged. I have a threefold plan, but I just need you to go and do what I need you to go and do. So we learn, and this is in your notes, that the path to recovery, the path to recovery from depression and loneliness is to get back to work. Get back to doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. Quit dwelling on your feelings and go serve others who are in need. Verse 18, the famous 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal, nor have they kissed him. Well, those were signs of obeisance. Those were signs of worship, okay? And the fact is, is that God always has a remnant. Well, it is fair to consider that these 7,000 maybe were not outwardly and actively standing for the Lord like Elijah was, or else he probably would have known about it, right? But he didn't know about it. But yet there was 7,000 others, whether secretly or whatever, had chosen in their heart, and God knew it, that I will not worship these idols. I will not bow to them. I will not kiss them. I will not do what everybody else is doing just because everybody else is doing it. They stood against the peer pressure, young folks. They stood. And they might not have been like Elijah calling down fire from heaven, but they said in their heart, I don't care what others, my friends, my associates, my colleagues, the people around me are doing. I will do the right thing. And Elijah wasn't aware of it. He wasn't aware of it. And God wanted to remind him. They weren't worshiping Baal. God still had him out there. Their hearts feared the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, they would be a part of Elijah's continuing ministry. Hey, Elijah, if you'll get back to work, you just might run into some of those guys. And so similar to what he did with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18, verse 9 and 10, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak. Hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And the idea is, God says, look, don't be afraid, Paul. Just get back to work and do what I've told you to do. I've got a lot of people out there that you need to share the gospel with. I've got people out there that are ready to hear. I've got people out there whose hearts are prepared. But you've got to be ready. You've got to do what I've asked you to do. So the fact is, is that you're never truly alone in God's family. You're never truly alone if you're in God's family. What a blessing that is. I've traveled all over the world, and I have traveled around the world at times all alone. I I have gotten on planes alone, and I have landed alone. And you know what I found on the other side? Christians. (laughs) I found people who love the Lord everywhere I've ever gone. And because I have traveled a lot, because I have lived in many different places, because of my particular experiences in life, I have really experienced and grown to appreciate the benefit that is the family of God. And if you love the Lord and we love the Lord, you're welcome here. And we welcome you and people will welcome you as you step out in faith and trust the Lord. You're never, you're never justifiably going to say what Elijah said, I'm the only one left. No, there's always more out there. In fact, if you took the time to look in 1 Kings 20, and that's a chapter we're actually not going to study because Elijah is not specifically mentioned in it, what you're going to find is, is that, a, that the nation of Syria attacks Israel. 
And there's a, a guy, he's just, he's just generically referred to a prophet. It's not Elijah. Some prophet shows up and counsels with Ahab in, uh, in Israel. Well, who's that guy? Well, I don't know. But he's somebody who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. He's somebody who's not worshiping false gods, right? And so what you need to understand is, is that if you're suffering from these issues, man, get back to work. If you will focus on getting busy, meeting the real needs of other people, then God will meet your needs. He will meet your needs. But if you think of yourself always first and foremost and worry about yourself and your circumstances, then what happens? Well, it's, I, I imagine it this way. Lord, this really bothers me, so I'm going to do this, and I get hasty, and I make decisions, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to call this guy, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to quit that, and I'm going to go here. And, and it's as if the Lord is watching this whole show and thinking, well, I mean, if you got it handled, I mean, go ahead. If you think you got it, I mean, you go ahead. And look, none of us would do that consciously, but we do it, don't we? And the idea is this. Ask yourself this question seriously. Who do I want handling my problems? Me or God? Because by getting busy and involving yourselves in the lives of other people in need, and, and oh, by the way, no matter how bad you have it, somebody else has it worse. Somebody else has it better. We're just common people like anybody else. And when you involve yourselves literally, truly, sincerely to reach out and help the needs of others. You don't have time to worry about yours. You are trusting the Lord to meet yours as you're actively busy meeting the needs of others. How many times do we hear church people over and over and over again, I can't get involved in ministry. You don't know all the problems I have in my life. Well, I I don't mean to disrespect the severity and reality of your problems, but I think there's some wisdom in saying if you would get involved in ministry, maybe, just maybe, the Lord will ramp up what he's doing to help you solve your problems. Something to consider. That's what we see in this story, isn't it? Well, lastly, and although maybe not quite as obvious as the previous two, we see the last challenge that I'm referring to, point number three, challenged with insignificance. Challenged with insignificance. And we're going to look at the last three verses, 19, 20, and 21. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. So what we see here is that it is easy to feel insignificant when you are overcome with your circumstances, when you don't see the visible results of all of your efforts. And I can only imagine Elijah saying, after all this, And for what? What has it gotten me? And it makes you think like whatever it is you're doing doesn't really make any difference. Nobody seems to care, so why should I? Have you ever thought that? I've thought that. 
Nobody seems to care. Why should I care? Well, back in verse 15, God said, get back to work. And thankfully, Elijah made the first right decision. He obeyed. He departed thence, verse 19. And he found Elisha. So we see, what I want you to see first off is the call. I want you to see that God chose Elisha. Elijah didn't choose Elisha because his name was close and, you know, that was cool. He, God chose Elisha, right? He said, go anoint Elisha to be the prophet in your place. And so that's important to understand because Elijah is just carrying out the plan that God has established. He casts his mantle on Elisha. The mantle would be like an outer garment, right? And it would be the sign of the passing of responsibility from the one prophet to the other. It's, it's literally a call to follow. And the mantle is a sign of God's power. If well, Eventually we'll get to 2 Kings chapter 2 and Elijah is, is going out and he's about to be raptured out and he takes his mantle and he smites the river Jordan and the river Jordan parts in two and they walk across on dry land. There's something about that mantle. It's just a, it's a sign of God's power on his life. And Elisha, chosen by God, was chosen by God, notice, to minister unto Elijah. He started out by being his assistant. He started out by just helping him out. He served Elijah. That was his beginning. Okay, God called Elisha. Uh, the thing I want you to see about Elisha, though, is the candidate. Who is this guy, Elisha? Well, he is someone who's busy. Who's the right candidate? Well, the right candidate is somebody who was busy. Verse 19, he was busy plowing in the field with oxen. And you think, well, you know, so he had a job. <laughs> we all have jobs, right? Okay, well, it's a little more significant than just that. I mean, God put this together for a reason. Because oxen represent for us in typology and pictures Christian ministers. And Paul uses this typology in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, the context literally is to take care of the Christian ministers that are around you. Pay the preacher. Serve those physically, those people who serve you spiritually. Make sure you take care of them provide for them physically. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 9. And Paul's defending this point in verse number 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, and he quotes the Old Testament, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. So he quotes, he's talking about taking care of the apostles as ministers physically, and he quotes Moses saying, hey, don't put a muzzle on the ox that's treading out the muzzle, the ox is treading out the corn he should be able to eat the corn scraps that fall on the ground while he's working. He should be able to eat, right? Okay, what's that all mean? Well, he goes on, Paul, with his lesson. He says, doth God take care for oxen? In other words, does God really care that much about a big cow? I mean, really. Or saith he it all together for our sakes? Then he answers the question, in case you were wondering. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth, that's a tough word. And hope should be partaker of his hope. Do you know who the people are that God will call? Well, those are guys that are busy plowing in the field. These are people with a yoke of oxen. Oh, Jesus said, you know, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But he says, take my yoke upon you 
and learn of me. There's something about the yoke of oxen doing the work that is the picture of Christian ministry. Who are the candidates for being called into this position of ministry leadership? Well, they are people who are busy doing the work right now. So Elisha asked for permission to so go say goodbye to his family, and you might remember the story in Luke 14, and you know, there's, I mean, they asked Jesus the same question, and he says, uh, no, you can't do that. You look back, you're, you're no good. But in that story, what you have is they're constantly making excuses. Oh, me first. Let me first do this. Let me first do And their focus was to make an excuse to not really follow. And in this case, certainly it's not that. So he's like, look, what have I, what have I done to you? Go, say goodbye, you know. And so he does, and, and, he, and, he, and he proves that it's genuine because in verse 21, Elijah throws this big going away permanently barbecue. And he takes the yoke of oxen and he slays them and he cooks them up and he, and he feeds everybody and they have a big party and, and basically what he's doing is, is he's destroying his very means for making a living. You know, we heard from Troy at the conference the story of the Roman legions that went into the British Isles to conquer it and when they landed on shore, they burned the ships so that there was no way of turning back. They had to win the war. You maybe have heard of the the Spanish conqueror, um, Hernando Cortez, and when he landed in Veracruz, Mexico, the same thing, burn the ships. There's no turning back. We might as well win these battles here now because we're not turning back, friends. And, and that's, the, that's the issue we need to see. And the way I put it in your notes is this. Retreat is easy when you have the option. Retreat is easy when you have the option. I have known missionaries, and again, this is not a blanket statement 100% of the time, but it always made me nervous. When a guy landed in Albania, for example, and come to find out that he still owned his home and his vehicle and all his stuff, and he, and he had it all intact back in the United States. Because nine out of ten of those guys, maybe ten out of ten, I don't know, but nine out of ten of those guys, let's just leave the door open, ended up going back to live in that house, going back to drive that car, going back to... Why? Because they left the, the, the way open for retreat. Oh, and that's what they did. And so this Elisha is amazing. He's busy doing the work, but when God calls him and he follows, he says, that's it, burn the ships. Burn, burn my very source for income. Get rid of it. He was a farmer. Get rid of it because there's no turning back. We're going on forward. And the, and the reason I make this connection with Elijah feeling insignificant is because Elijah was frustrated that with all that effort and everything he did, it seemed like there was nobody out there doing anything. And God said, get busy, get back to work. And among the things that God did for Elijah was, he gave him his successor. And that's the last thing in your notes. Success without a successor is failure. Success without a successor is failure. How do we judge success? in our service to the Lord? Do we judge success by the sheer numbers of people that show up and watch the big show that we put on on a Sunday or whatever the case might be? Well, if that was the case, then Jesus was a failure because he didn't get around all the regions and he didn't have massive crowds. On occasion, he did. But really, the work that he finished, as described in his prayer in, in John chapter 17, was the training of a few men that would continue the ministry for the next generation. And the real work of ministry is not that we have thousands and millions of people 
that get saved. That would be awesome. But the real success is that you train those who come behind you to continue to do what you could do if you were there. But now you have the ability literally to be in two places at the same time and fulfill the great commission that says that you should be witness unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. How could you possibly do that if we don't have a biblical system of discipleship? How could you possibly do that if you're not constantly training others that will take your place the minute you go somewhere else and do something else? If you don't supply your own successor and you leave, you're just a quitter. That's all you are. But if you find your successor, well, that's real success. Success or. I mean, that's the root of the word, isn't it? And that's what we need to understand. We need to see how Elijah can now, look, regardless of the, listen, Elisha, do the Bible study. Go forward into 2 Kings. What you'll find is Elijah himself never actually got around to anointing Hazael or Jehu. Elisha did. Because certainly Elijah in his discipleship process said, hey, God told me to do this stuff. But God took him out before he had the chance. Elisha anoints those kings because he's his successor. So Elijah's ministry is now significant. It's now significant. And the feeling of insignificance, well, that's remedied by securing a capable replacement. That's what it is. It's not that hard. Let me ask you a question. We're done. Have you found yourself on a mountaintop? whether it was this conference, whether it was other things in your life, have you found yourself on a mountaintop? Have you just things been tracking with God and you're awesome and you're excited and it's awesome? Well, okay. But how about for the other guys who maybe are down in what I'm calling the valley of despair? Maybe you're in the valley of despair today. Maybe you're somewhere in between. Well, if you took the time, again, we're not going to study it together, but again, in 1 Kings chapter 20 when Syria is attacking Israel, There's an interesting dynamic in 1 Kings 20, and I'm just going to show a couple of verses to you. Verse 23 says, And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods, Israel's gods, are the gods of the hills. In other words, when we fight them in the hills, they win every time. Therefore they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And so the Lord obviously knows that they're thinking, You guys think I'm only the god of the hills? Well, I'm going to have to kick your tail in the plain. (laughs) And so in verse 28, and there came a man of God, who's that guy? I don't know, it's not Elijah, it's just somebody who hasn't bowed his knee to Baal, and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Because God is God everywhere. And whether you find yourself on a mountaintop, or whether you find yourself in a valley today, God is there. Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse number 1, prophetically type picture the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called in verse number 1, the lily of the valleys. Because we go through many valleys in our life, don't we? And he's the lily of the valleys. That's who he is. Well, I'm going to show my age a little bit. Shortly after I got saved in the early 1980s, there was a Christian song that I really liked. And I'm going to read some of the 
lyrics to you. It was written by a songwriter named Twyla Paris, and the song's called The Warrior is a Child. And here's the lyrics. Lately, I've been winning battles left and right. But even winners can get wounded in the fight. People say that I'm amazing, strong beyond my years. But they don't see inside of me. I'm hiding all the tears. They don't know that I go running home when I fall down. They don't know who picks me up when no one is around. I drop my sword and cry for just a while. Because deep inside this armor, the warrior is a child. And you know what? There's been times in your lives when you have been the warrior and God has given you great victory. But if you've had any real success and any real fruit in your ministry, it's because there are also times when you realize, hey, I go running home to daddy just like everybody. And if you don't, you're going to be ground to powder before you know it. You're going to burn out and you're just not going to make it. But that's the way we make it. Because regardless of the mountaintops, there's always a valley. And we've got to learn how to walk through these things. They're common. They're natural. But you can bounce back. Spend time with God. Let him refresh you. Let him feed you. Trust him. Walk by faith. Get busy. Get involved in ministry. Serve others. And make disciples that will replace you when you're gone. And man, you will be on track for whatever you have in front of you. And Elijah gets back on track as well. Let's pray together. And Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we're so very thankful that your word does what it does. It provides for us this picture of Elijah's humanity. We, like him, are but clay. And Lord, I'm so thankful for the, the moments that you give us. We, we work hard and climb mountains to see an amazing view from the mountaintop. But all the roads from there go downhill. And regardless of the situation, may we always remember that you, God, are not just the God of the hills. You are the God of the valleys as well. And you are right there with us every step of the way. Lord, I want to pray specifically for everyone who this moment feels themselves in a valley.